Hey everyone, welcome back. Before we get started in the stories, I just need to give an overall warning for this whole video. All of these stories are extremely dark, disturbing, and graphic. I'll have the stories labeled in a timestamp so you know exactly just how dark they are, in case you want to skip any of them. But from murder, to child abuse, to rape, all of these stories are incredibly dark. So that's your warning if you want to click off this video. As always, you can send your story at southerncannibal.com if you ever want to share it. Without any more further interruptions, let's get started. And remember, to always stay hungry. I was 10 years old when Steve came to work for my dad. He was one of the guys from the neighborhood. It was 1980, and everyone knew each other. We all came from two large neighborhoods that were divided by a single street, so most of us, particularly the older kids, all hung out and partied together. Things back in the 80s were a lot different than now. Things were more lax, to say the least. For example, in my household and most of my friends' households, you were allowed to swear just as long as it wasn't directed towards anyone. This information will become relevant to this story. One day it was summer, 1981, and Steve needed a ride from a job site that he was working at for my dad. My stepmom and I were tasked with going to get him and take him home. Well, to say that I had a little crush on Steve would have been an understatement, and as we're driving him back home, I decided to act all grown up and begin swearing, just putting it in normal conversation. So when we finally get to his house, he turns to my stepmother and then asks, You're gonna let her talk like that? To which she responded back with, It's just words, Stevie. There's no malice behind it. I remember him looking at me with a look that I'd never seen before. Hate. That's the only word I can use to describe it. And as he's looking at me like that, he then says, That's a foul little girl, and steps out of the car. As soon as the door closed, she then looked at me and said, I don't want you alone with him ever. I was a bit confused, but I did understand because of the look he had given me. Well, time goes by, and it's now roughly 1989. I'm about 18 or 19 at this point, and I'm hanging out with some friends from the neighborhood when our local paper, the Oakland Press, shows up. So my one friend wants to look at the ads for a job and then grabs the paper. Well, right on the front page, in a column to the right side of the paper, is the headline, Oakland County Serial Rapist Strikes Again, and there's a composite sketch. My friend starts laughing and holding up the paper, stating, Look, it looks like Stevie. Well, sure as shit, it does look like Steve. But there's no way, right? He's so put together, smart, a talented artist, and he has a job and a beautiful girlfriend. There's no way that's him, and we all just brush it aside. Well, during the same time frame, myself and some of the other girls in the two neighborhoods start noticing movement outside our windows at night. We all just think it's the boys in the neighborhoods just being boys and brush it off. 
That is, until my stepsister wakes up in the middle of the night to go use the restroom, and she then sees a man's face pressed up to the bedroom window. She starts screaming, and we all rush into her bedroom. My dad takes off outside to go look. But of course, he's long gone by then. My dad comes back in and starts asking her questions. Did you see who it was? Did you recognize him? Which direction did he run to? She said that she had no idea who it was, but that it was a grown man with dark blonde hair. That she was sure of. For some reason, though, we didn't call the cops. We all weirdly just kind of brushed it off. Even my stepsister, after a couple of days, was totally over it. And then more time goes by. It's now roughly 1994, and I'm upstairs in my bedroom when I hear the front door then bust open and my friend Lyle comes rushing in. Julie! Julie! My friend says. What? I'm up here! What the hell, Lyle? Did you hear? Stevie's been arrested for rape. Lyle says. They're saying he's the Oakland County rapist. No fucking way. I respond back, as we're just staring at one another in shock. He then starts telling me what happened. To give some context, every Friday night, a guy named Red would hold a poker party that the older crowd would attend. So Stevie shows up one day and says to Red, Hey, if the cops come around asking questions about me, tell them I'm here by 8 on Fridays. Cool? Red was like, No problem. Thinking it had to do with those guys selling weed. And sure enough, the cops do show up asking questions. But it's not cops. It's detectives. And once they semi-enlightened Red as to why they were there, Red told them the truth. The truth being that Steve didn't show up most Friday nights until at least 11 o'clock to midnight. As it turns out, Stevie was using Red's poker party as his alibi, not only to the cops, but also to his girlfriend too. He would tell her that he was going to Red's for the night to play, but was really using our local community college on those Friday nights as his hunting grounds. And the crazy thing too was that I was actually attending that same community college at the time. It was surrounded by woods, and they would tell us to walk in pairs or ask security to walk us to our cars. He was ambushing the girls, hitting them in the head, then dragging them into the woods to beat and rape them. One had actually been discovered by security laying naked and unconscious in the bank parking lot. She had managed to crawl her way out of the woods after the attack before losing consciousness. When he finally went to trial, he was convicted on over 20 counts of rape. He was actually quoted saying to the police, I'm really glad you caught me when you did, because beating and raping them wasn't doing it for me anymore. The judge said, and I'm quoting her, We're very lucky we apprehended this man when we did. He was on the verge of becoming a serial killer, and his poor girlfriend. He would steal jewelry off of his victims and then give it to her as gifts, enabling him to secretly relive his horrendous acts every time she'd wear one of the items. It's been almost 30 years since he was convicted and sent to prison, and as far as I know, he's actually still alive. I've always wondered if I would have been his first killing. Criminologists always say that their first killing is usually close to home. He hated me so much, so I always just wondered. And the scary thing is, 
I would have willingly went with him if he'd shown up at our door saying for me to come with him. I wouldn't have given it a second thought. It just goes to show you that you never really know anyone. We all thought we knew Steve and his character. Turns out none of us really knew him at all. Warning, this story is extremely dark and graphic. It mentions rape, incest, murder, physical abuse, abuse of the elderly, child abuse, and pedophilia as well. Here we go. I'm a female, and I'm now an adult, and thinking about what I'm about to tell you just really creeps me out. I had an uncle who I'll refer to as Jay. Jay was like 50 when I was about 6, so he seemed so ancient to me. He had gray hair and was very overweight with a serious soda addiction. I was never allowed to be alone with him, but I only learned this as an older teenager. Jay lived with my grandma on my mom's mother's side. I hope that isn't too wordy. My great-granddad had passed away when I was 6 years old and Jay announced to all of us he would be living with my great-grandma to keep her company. I don't want to sound shady because I honestly don't judge people living with their parents, but, well, Jay only stayed there to be a mooch. He was obsessed with a sport called bowls, and he went to a bowls club and spent a lot of time in the pub afterwards. He didn't have a job, and I never heard of a story of him ever having one, to be honest. I can't remember what age I was, but I have a vivid memory of Jay talking about a secluded forest that he liked playing in when he was a kid, apparently. I say apparently because my grandmother told me that he had never even played on this path as a child. Anyways, he basically grinned at me in a creepy manner, and he told me he'd love to walk me up that path. Now, as I've said, I was never alone with Jay, so this never happened. But in hindsight, this incident sticks in my mind and creeps me out. I have a distant cousin who I'll call S. I found out when I was a teenager that Jay had groomed S when she was a kid. When she was 15 years old, they were caught having sex. Obviously, this was rape, but the family member who caught them didn't even bother telling anyone. Years later, S told the family what happened and that Jay had convinced her it was normal and that they were in a relationship. It's so sick and twisted. This is why that comment about him taking me into the forest with him makes me so uncomfortable to this day. It felt creepy at the time for some reason, and I honestly think he had sinister intentions. When I was like 12, my grandma got very ill. She had become more isolated over the years, and my gran had struggled to keep in touch with her because Jay always said she was asleep. Well, when she ended up taking ill, I can't remember exactly what was wrong with her. I remember in the hospital she had so many bruises, and she seemed afraid of Jay. When he was out of the room one time, she told my gran and her other siblings that Jay had been stealing money from her. She had told my gran to check a specific area in the house that had a stash of money that she'd hid from Jay, but when my gran went and checked, the money was all gone. Jay must have somehow found it. Every time she was released from the hospital, her bruises had healed, but they always appeared when she was home again. 
One time, her own wedding ring was missing, and her finger was broken. It was as if someone had forcibly removed it and literally broke her fucking finger. It was really disturbing, and my grand was convinced Jay was definitely up to something. One time, she ended up in a hospital because she had fallen out of bed. I remember the doctors were very suspicious about this, but nothing ever came of it. My grand later told me that the way my great-grandma had fallen, it was like someone had pushed her out of the bed. It was really scary. The only person who could have done that was Jay. Eventually, my great-grandma passed away, and I remember being at her house in the aftermath while everyone sorted through her things. My grand later told me that she found a bunch of pills in Jay's room and in the bathroom medicine cabinet too. She was convinced that Jay was drugging my grandma, but we can't prove this. It seemed like any time my grand tried to call her, she was asleep, and she's convinced Jay was behind all of it. So much of her money was missing too, as well as priceless jewelry. One day when I wasn't there, my grand said she went into Jay's room and his bedsheet was literally shredded. It had a huge hole in the center, and it had shit stains all over it, including on the mattress. There was also a sticky substance. Yeah, it's exactly what you suspect, but it was all crusty and dried in. I'm so sorry for that mental image, but I have to explain it. I didn't find out about this until I was 21, because obviously I was too young beforehand. My grand had also told me that she suspected Jay did something extremely dark to my great-grandma. She suspected that he harmed her in a sexual manner. Out of respect for my great-grandma, I can't bring myself to explain why this was suspected, but sadly, it is possible. Obviously, none of this can ever be proven, but it's so sickening if it's true. My grand also suspected that Jay contributed to my great-grandma's demise. She's convinced that he was drugging her for some reason, as well as stealing money and pushing her right out of the bed. She's also convinced that he stole her wedding ring and physically harmed her. It was also clear that he wasn't feeding her, and she was so weak she couldn't feed herself. My grand visited without Jay being there once towards the end, and she offered to make my great-grandma some food. My grand told me that she was extremely thankful, which struck her as odd. Then she told my grand that Jay only made her sandwiches sometimes. She wouldn't answer my grand whenever she probed for more information, and when my grand made her a full meal to eat. My great-grandma ate like she had never been fed before, which further disturbed my grand. The wedding ring was never found, and Jay claimed that he had absolutely no idea what happened. He also took my great-grandma's ashes and threw them away without telling anyone and he insisted she be cremated quickly too. Her death was kind of strange because she was ill, but the doctors didn't really know what with. She was just so weak for seemingly no reason. I have a memory of us being in my great-grandma's house, and Jay was sitting on the couch, and my grand had her back to us doing something. I remember seeing Jay's open laptop, and he was on a porn site. I knew what porn was at that age, but I obviously shouldn't be seeing it. Also, it's really fucked up that he had that on with his sister and a kid in the same room as him. His mom was dead, and he sat there with porn on? Really? It was so fucked up, 
and it's so creepy looking back. Honestly, he had the screen tilted as if he wanted me to see, which only freaks me out even more now. I'm so glad my family never left me alone with that man. I just know something terrible would have happened. I really believe he would have hurt me if he could. He's a very sick and disturbed weirdo. I remember he stared at me, looking at me noticing the porn. He actually giggled and grinned at me with his tongue out. It freaked me out. My gran had her back to us, so she wasn't paying attention, and I was honestly scared to say anything. My gran would have probably broke his neck if she saw, so I remember turning my head away really fast and just closing my eyes. I told my gran that I didn't feel well, and I asked if we could go into another room to look through some of the other things, which we did. I just wanted to get away from Jay, and thankfully, he didn't follow us. I assume he was just too busy watching porn in the living room, which is just unhinged to me. A huge family brawl happened on my grandside, and she and her siblings all had a huge fight with Jay over everything. They confronted him after the Ashes fiasco, and he denied everything. My grand actually accused him of murder and abuse, but he denied all of it. This was also right around the time that S came forward with what Jay did to her, but I wasn't made aware of it until I was older. Everyone was disgusted, and Jay was completely disowned by everyone in the family. The family member who caught Jay and didn't say anything wasn't disowned though, which I really hate, but that's a story for another day. Word on the street is that Jay now has cancer, but we aren't sure if that's true. One of Jay's best friends disowned him completely after learning of all his antics, alleged and proven. It was found out that Jay was stealing money from his little sports club, and he was also giving money to cam girls online. He apparently had a feederism fetish, and he targeted overweight women and gave them loads of money. My granddad made a comment about how he could give them money to eat, yet couldn't be bothered to feed his dying mother properly. It's so fucked up. He got some of these feederism ladies to date him, and I guess they're just as messed up as he is. One of them also died due to her lifestyle, and Jay didn't even attend her funeral. It just shows how he didn't give a shit about any of these women. He only saw them as a weird fetish thing instead of a human. I know those ladies were messed up too, but still, Jay just seems worse. My grand had someone tell her all this, and she listened for the gossip. But ultimately, she said that Jay deserves everything he gets. And I must say, I think I have to agree. It was 1999, and my parents had recently divorced, and my dad had a bad habit of dating some very questionable women, which he wasn't shy about inviting over. There was one woman in particular who stood out among the several bad eggs that he chose to spend time with. This woman happened to have a 13-year-old son, who she'd always bring with her to the party sessions hosted by my father. It was my dad's backwards way of hiring a proper babysitter for my five-year-old brother and I. This boy immediately made me uncomfortable, and as an extremely shy little girl, that's not surprising. But something about this boy really scared me, and my feelings went way beyond awkward childhood shyness. 
turns out my first impression of him couldn't have been more correct. My dad had a horrible habit of leaving my brother and I upstairs unattended while he partied with his friends and girlfriend downstairs, 90s biker style drinking Budweiser. I say we were unattended, but the strange 13-year-old boy apparently counted as proper supervision. He was hardly a responsible party because he used to tie up my tiny wrists with scotch tape, leaving me lying face down on my belly while he played Nintendo 64 with my brother. He did this many times, along with requests for a bag ride down the stairs. This request coupled with him holding a plastic lawn and leaf bag open as if I'd jump in so he could throw me down the stairs. Sometimes he'd hold a pencil to my neck whenever I was tied up, and he would actually whisper in my ear, If you move, I'll kill you. Luckily, my dad didn't see his mother for too long, but long enough for my interactions with her son to be plentiful and memorable. Well, after this duo were removed from our lives, my father's now ex-girlfriend left a dismembered baby doll and black roses in my dad's mailbox. FYI, the black roses were meant as a death wish. We never heard from them after that, at least that I know of. The real shock came many years after in 2005. So the boy who terrified me as a child was Aaron McDonald, then 19, who had helped Hannah Stone and Spencer Krempitz kill Barbara Kame, a 41-year-old registered nurse in August 2005. Barbara the victim was Hannah's mother. Spencer and Hannah were young lovers, and Hannah's mother didn't approve. So Aaron and Spencer abducted Barbara from her apartment, tied her up, and they then took her to a cornfield where Spencer shot her in the back of the head while she was tied up. Aaron apparently decided to be part of this horrific crime for a promise of only $400. I can't help but think he took great pleasure in being part of sadistically tying her up and killing her, an escalation of what he did to me. Hannah was sentenced to 55 years in prison for the murder, plus 30 years for conspiracy to commit murder, and 15 years for criminal confinement while armed with a deadly weapon. Her boyfriend Spencer pled guilty to the murder and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Aaron pled guilty and was sentenced to 62 years for murder, 10 years for criminal confinement, and 30 years for conspiracy to commit murder. Aaron is now dead. He died July 2020 of an overdose of heroin and fentanyl in prison. And sorry, but not sorry. Good riddance. He agreed to kill an innocent woman for a measly $400 and left me with a good dose of early trauma. Therefore, he won't get any sympathy from me. I grew up in the middle of nowhere Wyoming in a town of only 400 people. My father worked for the state and cared way more about his reputation than he ever did us kids. We lived in a three-story, two-car. Basically, everything looked perfect on the outside. My parents were extreme Catholics, so if we didn't read the Bible and say grace before our meals, mainly our mother would beat the ever-loving shit out of us. When my father would go to work, our so-called mother would transform into an animal. We weren't allowed to make noise or play down in the living room, and the rare occasion we would get to go play outside, she would be watching us from the window like a hawk behind the curtains. If we ever did anything she didn't approve of, she would come outside and either yank us inside 
or give us a death stare, waving us in and full-on punch us repeatedly in the back of the head. She would never hit us directly in the face so she wouldn't leave visible marks. One of the scariest times I can remember is when I was nine years old. She had forced me and my little brother, who was six, to watch while she beat my older sister while she was naked. My older sister's 14, by the way. It was absolutely terrifying as she repeatedly punched her in the ears and then yanked her around by the arm. After one of my sister's ears started to bleed, she grabbed her by the arm and then dragged her up the stairs. My little brother and I were literally frozen in fear, and I could barely breathe, feeling cold sweat dripping down my face. We both broke our trance when we heard screams coming from my sister upstairs. I alone ran up the stairs, and I slowly opened the door to my sister's room. My mom now had a white robe on with blood splattered all over it. My sister was literally bent over backwards on the top of a dresser, like ass up against the dresser bent over backwards, while my mom was putting pressure on her chest continuing to bend her backwards. My sister had lifted up her arm, whispering my name. I felt the blood drain from my face. Never in my life have I felt so afraid. Was I going to watch my mother kill my own sister? I thought to myself. I almost froze from fear yet again, but instead, I then ran down the stairs and out the back door. My grandma and aunt on my dad's side lived about three blocks away. This was also an extremely small town, dirt roads and all. When I finally reached their home, I pounded on the door, begging them to answer, and they finally did. I was trying desperately to tell them what was happening, but the words kept coming out all jumbled from being out of breath and being so terrified. I was shaking, and I could barely think straight. They told me to calm down, and rather than calling the cops, they called my father, and they told him to come home immediately. They then drove me back to the house. Once we got there, my mother was reading my brother a book in the corner. My aunt told my mother what I had told her, but she said she had no idea what I was talking about, and that my sister was at a friend's house. They all looked at me and told me I would be in very big trouble if I ever did this again. As soon as my aunt left, my mother picked me up with one hand, squeezing on my mouth and nose. Right then, we had heard my father pull up, and then my mom threw me to the ground. When my father came inside, she had then told him how I put on a big show and how I was such a liar. My dad was furious with me, and he made me go to my room and read the Bible. He didn't even bother to check upstairs to see if my sister was really gone or not. He just stormed out of the house and went right back to work. My sister could barely walk and didn't speak much for over a week, and no one even seemed to notice, let alone care. There's much more that happened, but that's all I'll share for now. This all happened between 1994 to 2000. I personally haven't seen or spoken to my mother in the past 12 years, and for all I care, she can rot and die alone for what she did to us. I feel a sense of calm and relief typing this out. I'll share more of my childhood again very soon. It was a nightmare that I thought would never end. Because of all the trauma, I haven't seen my brother nor my sister in the last 12 years either. We all moved to different states once we became adults, and we barely even talk on the phone. 
At least none of us ever have to deal with that monster of a mother ever again. Hey everyone, I hope you all enjoyed these stories. If you ever want to submit your own, you can do so at southerncannibal.com. Have a good night everyone. And remember, to always, stay home.